Our scripture today is, is from Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? This is the living Word of God for us today. You can have a seat. Good morning, fellowship. Isn't it good to be out? For those of us that are out, I forget sometimes we got a large audience online and you're not out. That's okay. I hope you're able to get out soon. Good to be with everybody. Good to see you. Uh, the, the thought that came to my mind this morning was um, that verse that says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It is really good to be here. Yeah, Carl and that team has me fired up this morning. What a great time of worship. Well, if you're new to fellowship, let me just introduce myself. I'm Rob Sweet, and I'm one of two pastors that, that do the teaching here, along with Lloyd Shadrach. We have two campuses, so while I'm here, Lloyd is at Franklin Campus and vice versa. We're in the same series together. In fact, Franklin is a week behind, so Lloyd today is teaching the message there. He taught here last week, and it, it's a great way to do it. it. It gives myself and Lloyd an extra week to prepare, so you know, we have two weeks to prepare these messages, which I love. In this particular text that we're in this morning, I've had a chance to soak in for two weeks. What a privilege and what a joy. You know, we've been in this series called The Sermon for a long time now, uh, going back to the start of the school year. And we'll finish it the week before Easter is when we're gonna finish it. And in the sermon, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, of course, what we've been teaching through, uh, Jesus, who is no question the greatest teacher who ever lived, unlocks for us some of the most profound thoughts, some of the most profound truths that human beings could ever know or understand. And as you would expect, when God himself teaches us things, some of it just doesn't make sense to our minds, at least at first. In fact, a lot of the sermon seems upside down to us. Jesus is saying like, the ones that are really blessed are the ones that are on the bottom. You know, what's down is actually up, he says, and what's up is actually down. It just sounds upside down. But if you really think about who Jesus was, you start to realize, well, maybe we're the upside down ones. Maybe the sermon is the right side up. And, and throughout this message, the call for us has been Jesus' call of saying, follow me down this path of life, this path of flourishing, this right side up life that Jesus lived. And the confrontation each week in our hearts is, will we believe Jesus you know, will we take him at his word? Will we follow him down the counterintuitive, countercultural path of discipleship? Or the other option each week is, will we simply hear his words and move on with our upside down lives? If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, which is to say, if Jesus is the heart of God in human form, and I hope that we will do more than just hear his words and continue our upside down lives. I hope that we will give our whole selves over to following him as his disciples. 
That's our purpose here at Fellowship. That's our mission. Now, what we have in this short passage this morning, five verses, is one of the most incredible invitations you will ever hear. And I know preachers are given to hyperbole, but I believe that to be true. Jonathan Pennington, who wrote a wonderful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says this about our text this morning. One of the most encouraging and hope-giving sections of the sermon and even the whole New Testament. Renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says of this text, it is one of the most sparkling and generous sets of promises anywhere in the Bible. Here's what I would say about it. If your view of God is like most Christians, then this text has the potential to lift a weight off of you, to transform your relationship with God in a beautiful and life-giving way. And of course, I have no power to do that in preaching, in teaching. The power is in the text. The power is in the Spirit of God speaking the text this morning. That's why we say this is the living Word of God for us today. We believe that as I'm teaching and as you're listening and as you're reading, the Spirit who authored these words is re-speaking them to us. He is alive and well, and his words are alive and well. And so I've been praying that that would happen. I've been praying that for some of you in this room, your relationship with God would fundamentally shift. Maybe you'd put your faith in Christ for the first time, or if it's, you've been a Christian for a while, you're, you're gonna have a new view of God through this text. I believe that this morning, not through any ability that I have, but through the power of the Spirit speaking his words. Now, before I begin... Okay, that, that was a, a setup, but I need to give now another setup to the text. Before I begin, I want to remind us of who Jesus is. Our theology tells us Jesus is the Son of God. But what does that mean? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? He is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, yet he exists in a way that is distinct from the Father and the Son. They are one, yes, but they are also three. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and neither the Father nor the Son is the Spirit, and yet they are one. Is everything clear? Jesus, this is why I go here. Jesus has eternally existed in a perfect relationship of father-child love with God the Father. I had never thought of that until this week. In other words, Jesus did not become the son of God when he was born in Bethlehem. He has always been the son. The title, Son of God, describes the unique relationship that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has with God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Jesus was and is and always will be the Son of God. Theirs is a father-son relationship of such beauty and power and perfection that the greatest parent-child relationships our world has ever seen are but dim shadows of the truth. So all of that to say, when Jesus describes God as father, like he does in this text, he knows what he's talking about. 
He has from eternity past personally and continually experienced the love of God as perfect fatherly love. He knows the personality and the character of God the Father. So when we hear this passage this morning, which Heather read and I'm about to reread and we think, okay, what's the big deal? Or we think, you know, I'm not so sure that's how God actually is. Remember who it is that is teaching us these things. Now, I want to read the text again and then we'll break it down. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts, give good things to those who ask him? Now, the text breaks down actually into three sections. There is, in verses seven and eight, an invitation. Following the invitation, there is, in verses nine and 10, an illustration. And then finally, in verse 11, there is, wait for it, an implication. You knew I had to go with eyes, didn't you? Implication. Now, we're going to break these down one at a time and just follow the text in the structure that it is given to us. So let's start with the invitation. Verses seven and eight. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. And then he says, seek, and you will find. He says, knock, and it will be opened. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks will be opened. Now, the, the invitation is threefold. There are three verbs here that are all in the imperative form, in the command form. Ask, seek, and knock. And corresponding to this threefold invitation, there's a threefold promise. And here's the threefold promise. When you ask, it will be given to you. When you seek, you will find. When you knock, it will be open to you. And all three of these imperative verbs, the ask, the seek, and the knock, are in the present tense. They're in the present active tense. What that means is it's a continual process. There's a persistence of prayer that we're being invited to, that we're being encouraged to. But hear this well. The primary emphasis of this text is not on what we do. It's not even, it's not on the, hey, be persistent in your prayer. The primary emphasis on this text is the openness and generosity of the Father. The fact that God desires for us to ask him for things. That the creator of the whole universe is eager for us to come to him with our little petty needs and our little small desires. 
Don't let the familiarity of this passage, for, for some of you it's very familiar, not all, but don't let the familiarity of this passage diminish how amazing it is. It is simple and profound and mind-bending that God in heaven would invite small, fragile, created things, us, to openly come to him with our desires and requests. I like the way John Stott puts it. He says, prayer, which really what this text is all about is prayer. Prayer is the chief means God has ordained by which to express our deepest desires. And Jesus is saying, you have a father in heaven that wants to hear him, that actively wants you to come to him. And not only does he want you to come to him, but he's going to not just listen, he's going to answer. It will be given to you. You will find it will be open to you. Now, if you're like me, these verses sound too good to be true. They sound a little too good to be true. And, and I want to address two common objections to these verses. But before I do, I just want to remind us, remember who's teaching these things. When they sound too good to be true, remember, this is the son of God who has known the father heart of God for all eternity. Yet we object. Jesus, it doesn't exactly work that way. Who are we to object? But we do. So let's talk about our objections. Objection number one. If God knows what we want, why do we ask? In other words, what's the point? It is true that God knows. But he invites us to ask. And it even seems that somehow... God's answer is dependent or at least connected on our asking. It's dependent on or at least connected to, you know? There's some mystery here. Here's what I make of this. God is inviting us in. Is he sovereign? Absolutely. Will he and can he do all the things that he can and will do apart from us asking? Absolutely. Is he inviting us in? Yes, he is. He's inviting us into his counsel, so to speak. This is remarkable if you really think about it. God, maybe think about it this way. God wants you to be a true son or a true daughter, to come to him freely and frequently, to trust his love enough to ask. And amazingly, and this is some interesting theology, but the more I I, I think and ponder and meditate on the scripture, I've come to this conclusion. Amazingly, I believe God works through our requests to accomplish his design on the earth. Now, what we're trying to do is we're trying to blend God's sovereignty with the invitation to come and ask, do you see? How does that work? Well, they go together. I love the way Scott McKnight, another New Testament scholar, put it. I think this is really helpful for me. Listen to this. I believe the broad sweep of the way which prayer works in the Bible teaches us that God in his sovereignty has established a kind of contingency in the universe and that God genuinely interacts with humans who pray in such a way that the universe changes as a result of our prayers. God has established a kind of contingency in the universe. And he says, come into the contingency because I want to know what you want. I want your voice to speak into my plan. Oh my goodness. This this is remarkable. This is evidence that he is a good, kind, wise father treating us like his children. Do you see? Okay, so that's objection number one. Why come? Why ask? He's going to do what he does. Because he invites us in. 
and somehow our prayers change things. Second objection, and this one's harder. These verses don't work. In other words, I don't always get what I ask for. And I don't, you don't. Now this objection is also true. There are definitely times when we pray for things and it either seems like God doesn't answer at all or even worse, sometimes God does the exact opposite of what we pray for. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you experience that, we all have. So I've been thinking about this and, and you know, God's drawn my mind to verse eight. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one knocks it will be open. Okay, you know, at first glance, you're like Jesus is just stating some kind of like, you know, general truth or this kind of thing. But I started thinking about this. I'm like, what do I receive when I ask? It's not always what I want, but Jesus is saying I receive. What do I find when I seek? It's not always what I'm hoping to find, but Jesus is saying, I find something. What is open to me when I knock? It's not always what I hope, but there is something opened. In other words, perhaps when we ask, seek, and knock, those actions in themselves create a deeper discovery than we realize. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Part of my parenting style, for better or worse, is I try to say yes to my three daughters as often as I can. Sometimes it drives my wife crazy. But here's my thinking. There are plenty of times that we're going to have to say no. And, and I want my daughters to know that my heart is for them so that when I say no, they will trust my heart that I have only good things in mind for them, that I have good intentions in mind for them. And of course, I don't do this perfectly. But when I say no to my daughter's request, it's an opportunity for them to learn a little bit more of my heart for them because I can just not, I, I can say no and here's why. And you know, they're 10 and 13 and 16 and they don't get it always. But it's an opportunity for them to learn to trust me just a little bit more than they did before. I would even say, maybe trust me a little bit more than if I had said yes. You see, you now, do they always take that opportunity? No, but, but think of it this way. That is the door that is open for them when they don't get from me what they ask for. The door is open to trust. Now, I know that's not a full answer to the objection of, but, but does this actually work in real life? but it prepares us for where Jesus goes next because he's gonna address this objection, this exact one. He does it with an illustration. Let's look at the next verse. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, you know, Jesus did almost all of his ministry in the Galilee region, which is in northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a large lake. It's a beautiful area, fishing area. It's a rural area even today for the most part. And the, the diet that people in the Galilee region would eat, these two things, bread and fish, 
Those are the staples of their diet, literally morning, noon, and evening, bread and fish. And so obviously his audience was very familiar with these things. And they were also familiar with the phenomena that when kids get hungry, they ask their parents for food. I'm hungry, I'm hungry, when's dinner, when's lunch? All these kinds of things. But Jesus puts a funny spin on this common thing. And by the way, I do believe he's trying to be funny here. You know, Lloyd talked uh, last week, he talked about the, the plank in your eye. And he's like, Jesus is being humorous. Jesus is also being humorous here. Can you imagine a hungry child going to mom or dad saying, you know, I'm hungry for bread. And, and they, the parent just picks a stone off the ground and says, this ought to do. You know, bon appetit. Can you imagine a child saying, I'm hungry, and a father pulling a snake out of a hole and throwing it on the high chair for the toddler? Of course not. It, it's, it's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous that it's just funny. It's exaggerated. Now, here's Jesus' point. We as fathers and mothers instinctively care for our children. It's part of what God has put into us in his image. Have you ever thought about that? It, it's not so much that, that God is like us in his fatherly love. It's that our best parenting is a little bit like God's in his fatherly love. In other words, we're made in God's image. He has made us to be like himself and he's a perfect parent. He's a perfect father. And so Jesus is using this illustration to set them up for the punchline, for the final verse where he brings the lesson home, the implication, and here it is in verse 11. Therefore, so he's saying this, if you then who are evil, even you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The word evil is a very strong word. You know, it's strong in English, it's strong, strong in, in, in Greek. But Jesus is not condemning them. He's using a strong word because he's making a contrast between the best human parent and the God who is Father, capital F-A-T-H-E-R. You see, he's saying, even the best parents, your, your great intentions, your, your deep love for your child that you would literally lay down your life for your child, even that is like evil compared to how good the love of the Father is. Now, what's interesting about this comparison, you know, our, our love and, and, and uh, God's love, there's a comparison going. What's interesting is, think, think about this. The love of a parent for a child is perhaps the closest a human being can get to knowing and understanding the love of God. And, and for those of you who are parents, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know the intensity, you know um, the, the, the absolute your heart is just embedded in the heart of that other human being and their flourishing and their struggles. You live it all. Your concern for their welfare and flourishing of your child. And yet, every human parent has a fatal flaw, the same one, the selfishness of our sinful nature. There, there is a seed of selfishness in every parent. 
And that seed of selfishness is in the middle of what seems to us like pure unselfish love. But if you are self-aware enough, you will see it in you. When our children are demanding, we get impatient. When our children return our love, either with indifference or as they will, rebellion, we get hurt. We get angry. We, we can close off. Even worse, we depend on our children to fill something in us rather than being fully free to give ourselves away to them. Jesus is saying, there is no selfish seed in the love of your Father in heaven. It is not in his nature or character to be anything less than a whole and complete Father to you. It is as impossible for him to be an imperfect father as it is for us to be a perfect parent. And the way Jesus is expressing this is he says, he only gives good things to those who ask him. I want to focus in on those two words. And Jesus was likely speaking in Aramaic. That would have been the common dialogue of the day. It would have been translated into Greek when, when Matthew compiled it. But Jesus also would have speak, spoken Hebrew and Hebrew and Aramaic are very, very similar. The Hebrew word for good is tov. In Genesis 1 and 2, you know, God's creating the earth and he saw that it was tov. He saw that it was good. It means good, but, but in a more profound way, it means whole. It means it's just right. It's complete. It has nothing lacking. It is everything that is needed for that thing. And so Jesus is saying he only gives tov things, good things, whole things to those who ask and I know what some of you are thinking and you're feeling and you're like, how is that right? How is that true, Rob? Do you know some of the things God has brought into my life? Here's what I want to encourage you with this morning. Lean into your faith. And what would it look like for you to see the circumstances around you with eyes of faith, not eyes of flesh. When you come to God as a child and ask him for something, beg him for something, and he does the opposite of what you asked for. The one certainty of the situation is that your father in heaven has not given you a bad gift. Our circumstances are never the result of our Father in heaven showing indifference or hatred toward us. So listen to these words of John Stott, who I think puts this together really helpfully. He says, perhaps we could put the matter in this way. Being good 
Our heavenly father gives only good gifts to his children. Being wise as well, he knows which gifts are good and which are not. So then if we ask for good things, he grants them. If we ask for things which are not good, either not good in themselves or not good for us or for others directly or indirectly, immediately or ultimately, he denies them. And only he knows the difference. We can thank God he answers prayer and we can thank God he also sometimes denies our requests. I think I remember a country song about that. I've shared this quote from Tim Keller before, short quote, it's just one to just keep in your head. It's one of those kinds of quotes. He says it this way. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. It takes faith to believe that. That's what the Bible says. That's precisely what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 7, 7 to 11. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. So here's how I would describe this text, okay? We've walked through it. Now I'm gonna gonna summarize it and we're gonna apply it. These five verses teach us how the Son of God experiences the love of his Father. And Jesus is actually inviting his disciples to see the world around them the way he sees the world around him as a place saturated by the love of a father who has only good intentions for his children. A father who works all things together for good. And so when you see the world this way, right? It will change your prayer life. In fact, it will change your entire life but it will start with your prayer life. Scott McKnight poses a very good question about this text. He says, how much do we not have because we do not ask and we do not ask because we do not believe God is good? I wonder, how how much do I not have because I do not ask? Guys, I am so self-dependent. I don't talk to, I don't ask God for much. You know, I, I don't know why. Why? Well, because he's going to do his thing no matter what, or I don't know that he's really paying attention to me enough, or, or my, my little request is not that big a deal. Do you see Jesus is, is cutting in the opposite direction of all that? He's saying, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong, Rob. You're seeing God wrong. He's a father who has his attention on you and he's inviting you in. Come in, ask, seek, knock. And when you do that, believe that he's a good father. I actually have come to this opinion about my prayer life. I think this probably applies to everybody. Our prayer lives will be transformed simply by deeply believing God is a good father to you. So, you know, we we talk about the heart here at Fellowship and we, you know, the the Bible describes it as thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices. And we talk about, it starts in, there it is. It starts in the mind with our thoughts. What Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to renew our minds around the character in the heart of Father God. Because he he knows if you can start seeing God the way that I see God, Jesus is saying, your emotions about your circumstances are gonna begin to shift. The desires of your heart are gonna transform and you're gonna make new choices starting in your prayer life and eventually in your entire life. Do you see what Jesus is going after? our minds in this because he wants to transform our whole hearts. 
So here's the real question. Here's the choice. You know, that remains for us. Here's the question. Will you take Jesus at his word? Will you believe what Jesus says about the heart of God for you? Or will you believe what you in your own flesh believe or doubt or resist? It's not an easy question. While you're thinking about that, consider one more thing about Jesus. He knows suffering. Uh, he, he knows what denial feels like. He, he wrestled with the father in the garden of Gethsemane. He sweat drops of blood saying, you know, father, if there's any other way, do it differently. And yet he even said, and, and even in that, I will trust you. Your will be done, not my will be done. You, you see this? Jesus experienced brokenness and tragedy and grief in our broken world be, firsthand. So it's not as if he's this um, naive, and, and uh, um, uh, maybe privileged son who says, you know, listen, you got a really good dad. He's always treated me well, but he's out of touch with the real world. That's not Jesus. He was poor. He was lonely. He bled. He lost people he loved. His friends betrayed him. He experienced the brokenheartedness of life and all its rawness and all its pain. And through all of that, right up to the agonizing end of his life, he was able to say, I trust my father. In fact, literally with his last breath, with his last breath, father, he said. That's what he was calling this God that, that, that saw it in his will to ask Jesus to die a torturous death for the sins of mankind. In his last breath, he says, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And see, here's the thing, okay? This is where this message, I, I hope, is gonna shift into something gospel, you know, something explosive. Because in that moment that Jesus said that, the end of his life, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, that changed everything for us. And, and here's why. Because Jesus fully trusted and obeyed his Father. All the way to the end, he earned for us his place as child. This is where this is so profound. I want you to think about it this way. You are a child of God. Yes, in the generic sense, because God made you and he made everyone around. So in a sense, you know, people say we're all children of God. However, however, when you identify yourself with Jesus Christ through faith, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God becomes a father to you in a much more profound way. He becomes a father to you in the same way that he's father to the son of God. This is incredible theology and this is what the Bible teaches. This is what it means to be in Christ. So here's what I think is going on in the Sermon on the Mount on these verses. Jesus is teaching his disciples to come to the Father as children, anticipating the work that he would do on the cross when he would reconcile those very men and women to be true daughters and true sons so that they would know the Father as he knows the Father. And so for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus' relationship with the Father has become our relationship with the Father. Oh my. That means when the Father looks at you, he looks at you with the same satisfaction and delight as he looks at his own son. And you can't lose it. Like you can't sin enough to rid yourself of the delight of the Father on you. This is what half the New Testament says over and over and over and over again. 
You're in Christ. I thought about it. You know, this, these thoughts just kind of like overwhelmed me this week as I was preparing this sermon. This happens sometimes when you teach. And, and I thought about it this way, and this is not a perfect way to say it by any means, but, but I wrote this down. The whole Bible could be summed up as the story of the Son of God in all eternity past, experiencing such unity and relational perfection with his Father that he was willing to temporarily lose it so that we could gain it with him for all eternity future. And I thought about what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. Listen to this. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And, and what kind of wealth is Paul talking about? He, he's not talking about, you know, gold and, and money and bank accounts. He's talking about relational wealth with God. You've become rich with God, which is the greatest kind of wealth you could ever imagine. You know, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and you're his child. You have all the rights of the family. Oh my goodness, guys, this is the gospel. Have you received it? Has it penetrated your heart? Do you believe the words of Jesus? So here's, here's how I'll start wrapping this up, although I don't want to. I came across this quote this week, um, Ray Ortland, pastor in Nashville, Emmanuel Church. If God is for you, then in all that God is doing in the world today, right down to the atoms, whatever God is doing in this moment, God is bending reality around to your eternal advantage. You are walking through a world tilted in your favor because God says, this is going to go well for you. And everything you're going to experience in the entire length of your life will only take you more deeply, more meaningfully, more tenderly into the love of God. That is reality for those who are in Christ. Yeah, and somebody out there has to say amen, I think. It's gotta be in the room. Okay, amen. All right. So therefore, if you have never known this love of God as Father, if you've never really known him as father with the confidence of a child who feels fully safe and fully secure in his love for you, come to Jesus. Come just this morning, just in your heart. Jesus, I want what you have relationally with the father. I acknowledge you died for my sins. You lived the life I couldn't. You died the death I deserve so I can have what you have. And you were raised from the grave for the hope of eternal life, of that kind of life, that kind of relational wholeness for the rest of my eternity. Put your trust in Jesus. Take Jesus at his word. If you've done that already, renew this mindset of God's love for you this morning, believe it, lean into it, dare to see reality the way Jesus sees reality. Dare to see the Father the way Jesus sees the Father. You can. 
see the father through the eyes of a son or daughter of God who has nothing to fear, nothing to fear. Let this way of seeing the world change your prayer life and change your entire life. And so we're gonna do that right now. We're gonna do that right now. Why not? You don't have to go home to live out this sermon. Let's do this right now. Here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna put on the screen, this, this slide, this heading header we always put up each week. Jesus, show us what it means to follow you. I mean, we keep doing this because we really mean it. It's like the, the whole point of the sermon is not just to become theologically smarter. It, it's to learn to follow Jesus. And so this is super simple. There's nothing profound on that screen. It comes straight from the text. Here's what we're going to do. Come to the Father as a child. Have you ever thought about that's the way Jesus comes to the Father? What does that mean? Jesus says, ask. So let's do it. Jesus says, seek. Let's do it. Jesus says, knock. Let's do it. And let's do it once we leave, of course, but let's do it in this moment right now. So here's how this is going to work. The band's up here behind me. We're going to do a little singing and a little praying, and it's going to be mixed in in, in some, some opportunities for us just to walk through these three things. So we're going to sing a little bit and then we're going to be prompted to ask and we're going to sing a little bit more and prompted to seek and sing a little bit more and prompted to knock. And that's how we're going to end this message today because we don't have to wait. He is a father who has been eager for us to hear the words that have been spoken this morning through the text. And he was eager for you to hear them so that now you will come. So let's come.